0: Hebrews chapter number 11, and I'm going to begin reading at verse number 20. The Word of God says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith Jacob, when he was a-dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Well, of course, we're in this catalog of faith and figures of faith to give you a little bit of background. Don't forget that the book of Hebrews is written to, uh, to Jewish individuals in the first century uh, that are at the door of, of the cross, if we want to say it that way. Uh, some of these individuals are looking at the prospect of believing on Jesus Christ, they've not yet done it. Uh, but they are examining and they're trying to weigh in their heart and minds whether they're going to. Some of them may have even made a public profession, uh, but have not truly believed on the Lord. And then some of them have just been saved, no doubt that Paul is writing to. And, uh, and they're being exhorted to go on for the Lord, not turn back to the old dead ways of uh, of the Jewish uh, system and the Levitical law. And then we might say there's a third category in here of people that they're still at the door but they've been at the door for decades. They've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, they've placed their faith in him, but they have never grown. They are still sort of ensnared in this system of Judaism, they've never grown past it. They've never seen the deeper truths in Christ Jesus. So that is who the Hebrews writer is addressing this letter. Now remember, you have to, as as you look at each book of the Bible, uh, this is structured entirely different from the Pauline epistles to the churches. Uh, and that's because he's not necessarily writing to a church. In the book of Hebrews, he is writing to Hebrew individuals. Now, no doubt there were groups he had in mind through which this letter was circulated, uh, but it's not the same structures when you think of a church epistle. So he's writing to these individuals. What is his purpose? What is his desire? It is to exhort them to go on in full faith, believing Jesus Christ, and to live for, for them. If we could put it in one short phrase, the book of Hebrews could be summed up this way. Don't turn back. Don't turn back. Go on. Go towards Christ. And what is the overall theme of it? The overall theme, and we've used this as our theme throughout this series, is better things. That Christ is simply better in all ways, in all fashions, in all shapes, than what the Old Testament system ever offered. And so he has laid forth faithfully this this theological treaty and argument and idea And in chapter 11, he then approaches the idea of faith. Faith has always been the means whereby men approach unto God. Faith is only valuable inasmuch as its object is the right one. And the right and appropriate object of faith, the only object that can turn faith into saving faith, is Jesus Christ. And so he is showing the value of faith, and he's also showing the precedent of faith. A lot of people have this idea that faith is a New Testament idea, but that's not true. Now, the church is a New Testament idea. The new birth is a New Testament idea. The indwelling, perpetual indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a New Testament idea. But faith is not an exclusively New Testament idea. Faith, we can go all the way back, and the first time we see uh, human beings exhibiting faith was after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and God robed them in skins, and they trusted, believed that what God provided was adequate. And of course, in the book of Hebrews, the first example that is given is Abel, who gave a sacrifice of faith. So marker down, faith has always been the path and means through which men came to God. And to substantiate this, the Hebrews writer in chapter 11 goes through what we like to call the hall of faith, but he gives a catalog of individuals that exhibited faith. We're talking about before the New Testament that exhibited faith, that obtained the promises of God, that had righteousness imputed unto them as a result of it. Now, he's been going through what we've called the patriarchal age, and what we've already ran over is Abraham. We've already dealt with Abraham and Sarah. But we have, the rest of the patriarchs are mentioned in the three verses that we've read. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, we're into something a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally, we never leave our text uh, and, and venture around. But we are going to this time, because I think it's important that you see these things. If you have your Bible, and if you don't, just listen carefully. But if you do have your Bible, look with me in Genesis chapter 27, and we can learn about Isaac's faith. Genesis chapter number 27. I will go ahead and tell you that I think of all the people mentioned in Hebrews 11, Isaac is the most difficult. The reason is because we don't evidently, in, in an explicit way, see faith in the life of Isaac. The only faith we could really say we see in Isaac's life is the faith to follow Abraham up Moriah and the faith that it was to, uh, uh, to trust Eleazar to bring him a bride. But his life is not a voluminous one in Scripture. We don't have a lot of record of it. And we don't see a lot of these shining examples of faith like we do in Abraham. Really, we see less faith in the life of Isaac than we do in the life of Jacob. And let me even go a step further and say this. The instance that God points to as being an exercise in faith is not something that we think of as a bright spot in Isaac's life. Now, look at what it says, and I want to read what it says about Isaac in Hebrews 11 again to you before we look at Genesis 27. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Now, in Genesis 27, we have that laid forth. You remember that uh, Isaac stole not only the birthright, he did that. Uh, we might say that Esau sold his birthright. But uh, rebecca or I'm sorry, let me get my names right, Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. You know the story how that uh, Isaac, he's getting ready to die. He tells Esau, uh, before I bless you, I want you to go and and kill uh, a deer and bring some venison. And uh, I want to enjoy that. And then I will bless you. And how that uh, Jacob goes into his mother, Rebecca, and says, hey, listen, uh, we we need to get this blessing. And uh, Rebecca, of course, prompts Jacob in that and says, uh, you need to steal that blessing from Esau. And how that they cover him with skins, how that they uh, cook goat meat and send him into Isaac. And uh, Isaac, because he's old because he's blind, he does not know who he's dealing with, and he blesses Jacob. Now, the question must be asked, in what way did Isaac exercise faith? He was deceived, he was lied to, he was so distracted by what he was about to put in his belly that he didn't pay any attention to where he was about to put his blessing. Nothing in the narrative about Isaac would seem to suggest faith. But listen to what happens. Look down at verses 33 through 37. The Bible says, And Isaac trembled very exceedingly. This is when Esau has come into him in verse 32. And Isaac, his father, said unto him, Who art thou? And he said, I am thy son, thy firstborn Esau. And Isaac trembled very exceedingly and said, Who? Where is he that hath taken venison and brought it me? And I have eaten of all before thou camest and have blessed him. Yea, and he shall be blessed. And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with a great and exceeding bitter cry and said unto his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. And he said, Thy brother came with subtlety and hath taken away thy blessing. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he hath taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord, and all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? Now, let's read that again, what it says in Hebrews 11 about Isaac. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Here's what happened. Uh, The Bible, in no uncertain terms, tells us that Rebekah loved Jacob and Isaac loved Esau. Esau was the firstborn. To him belonged both the birthright and the blessing. And if Isaac had had his way, that's exactly what would have happened. Here's the problem. God had already given a prophecy that the elder would serve the younger. Isaac was trying to subvert God's plan through his own desire and will. But you know what he finds? He finds that it doesn't matter what kind of detour you try to take around God, God's everywhere. The blessings are interesting things. The blessings are not necessarily uh, powerful, but they are prophetic. And what I mean to say by that is this. Evidently, Isaac did not have the power to exercise his will because he wanted Esau. So the blessing was not something where Isaac says, I'm going to imbue uh, unto you some kind of, of spiritual significance and power. But rather, the blessing was when God, through the patriarch spoke prophetically concerning the future of the nation of Israel. What happened here was God went around Isaac's will. And Isaac, when he saw what God had done, he looked at Esau and he said, it's not within my power to change God's promises. It's a hard lesson Isaac had to learn, but he had to learn this, that God is always right. His, we might say, is a negative lesson of faith concerning the promises of God. We, all through Hebrews 11, the promises of God and faith in them is lifted up as a joyful and and uh, and, and um, appealing thing. And certainly it is. But for Isaac, it was not. But it tells us this, that whether we like the promises of God or whether we loathe the promises of God, the promises of God are still sure. Isaac was not able to subvert them. And so he spoke to Esau and he said, there's nothing I can do about it. God already spoke before you were ever born, son, and I should have listened to it. There's no blessing left. If it was merely a matter of Isaac's will, Isaac would have had every right to look at Jacob and say, you lied to me. You tried to deceive me. I'm taking the blessing away from you, and I'm giving it to your son Esau. But it was not within Isaac's power. He was the, the mouthpiece of the blessing, but God was the sovereign of the blessing. And in him trying to bestow it upon Esau, he was subverting God's plan as it had already been revealed to him. And he learned the hard way that you can't fight God and win. Can't fight God and win. Look with me in uh, in Genesis chapter number 48, and we'll learn something interesting about Jacob. Genesis chapter number 48. Now, the Hebrews writer says this about Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning upon the top of his staff. Why was this an exercise in faith? Well, it's interesting because it seems that Jacob took the lesson that he had seen learned in his father very seriously. Because many long years have passed. Joseph has had two children born to him while he is in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the older, Ephraim is the younger. And as such, Joseph expects that when the blessing is given, when, when Jacob blesses his sons, he will naturally bless Manasseh instead of Ephraim. Here's the problem. God had already spoken, just as he had in the case of Jacob and Esau. He had already spoken and said, the elder shall serve the younger. So listen to what it says in Genesis 48, verses 13 and 14. The Bible says, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Here's what happened, and I'm going to have to use a couple chairs as an illustration. I think you probably, even in the reading of it, understood what was being said there. But I'm going to borrow Diane's chair here, even with the purse. I might take a little something out of that purse, I don't know. (laughs) So, when Joseph comes to Jacob, and Jacob is sitting there, and he's about to bless the sons, uh, Jacob takes and puts Manasseh on his left hand. The reason why is because he's sitting opposite. He's a mirror image of Jacob. And Jacob, when he reaches out, the right hand is the one that you blessed the firstborn with. So he puts Manasseh on his left hand, Joseph does, which places Manasseh on the right hand of Jacob. And he puts Ephraim on his right hand, meaning that Ephraim will be on the left hand of Jacob. Jacob's an old man. I don't know if Jacob could see clearly or not. uh, But something either in this world or in another realm caused Jacob to understand what was taking place. And so when he reaches out, he crosses his hand over and blesses Ephraim first instead of Manasseh. He does this because he understands the same principle that his father had to learn the hard way, that God was going to bless the younger before the elder and that the elder would serve the younger and we learn that even in his old age Jacob though everything has changed in his life when Jacob began his life he's in the land of Canaan he's a child of a patriarch he's dwelling in tents by the time he goes to die he's been carried into Egypt his son who he thought had been dead all those years has now risen to be one of the most powerful men in the land he's not dwelling in Canaan not tents anymore he's dwelling in Egyptian palaces nothing is the same everything's different uh, if there was any reason to think that God's plan would have been derailed, you would have thought something in that long string of incidences would have derailed it. But Jacob understood that God's promises are sure. And so he placed his faith in the promises of God and said, even though it's unlikely and even though it'll be 400 years before we ever come out of here, if God spoke and said that Ephraim will have the prominence instead of Manasseh, then God's word will prove true. We have another instance very quickly, and we'll move on. But look in chapter 50 of Genesis. We have Joseph mentioned. Verse 22 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. This takes place in Genesis 50. Uh, Jacob Gave commandment as well. He, he told Joseph, he said, when you leave here, won't you take my bones? And he was embalmed and he was entombed and his bones were carried back. And Joseph, carrying with him the same confidence that he had learned from his father, gives these instructions in Genesis 50, verse 24. Joseph said unto his brethren, I die and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being a hundred and ten years old and they embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, it's easy to lose the magnitude of this, but understand that God had given the prophecy to Abraham that the children of Israel would be in bondage for over 400 years. So this whole notion of this 400 years of bondage was something already known to Joseph. Understand this, that faith spans the ages. Faith looks at what is immediate and what is in the distant future. And faith will trade the distant future based on the promises of God for the present based upon human reasoning in a heartbeat. Faith doesn't look at just what is imminent. It looks at what God has said is absolute. And places its faith in God. We have Moses is approached next in verse number 23. And we're going to read uh, verse number 23 and say a word about it. And then read a few verses at a time. We'll move a little bit quicker through this chapter as we do. But The Bible says in verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Now, if Abraham is the one to whom most of the time is given, and it is in, in Hebrews chapter 11, Moses is, is just barely second place. A lot of space is given to faith in Moses' life. But it's interesting to note that Moses' life and the faith that was invested in it does not begin with his faith personally, but it begins with his parents. Faith that they exhibited. Amram and Jochebed were his parents. Now you know a little bit of the history. You understand, uh, I'm sure, and you've learned in Sunday school how that the children of Israel had grown to be a vast multitude while they were in bondage in Egypt, and how that Pharaoh, in fear that this great slave, army would rise up in insurrection, commanded that all of the Hebrew male children were to be cast into the Nile River as children's sacrifices and uh, as child sacrifices and to be slain to prevent this population from exploding. Amram and Jochebed, they looked at this situation. They understood that the waters meant judgment and they understood that the death of their child was imminent and they had a choice. What are we going to do? Are we going to submit to the infanticidal uh, tendencies and desires of this pagan king, or are we going to trust God? And they had an idea. They remembered that uh, many, many years ago, when the world was facing a similar judgment by water, God had prescribed a method through which just a small group of people could be saved from the coming judgment. God had commanded a man named Noah when the universal flood was about to happen, to build an ark. And that the ark could keep Noah and his family safe from the judgment waters that were coming. I want you to stop and think about their practical conclusions. They looked at it and said this, if God did it before, God can do it again. Now, it's interesting to note that God didn't do it the same way the second time that He did it the first time. And God's not always going to do for you exactly what He did for somebody else. He's not always going to do it in your life the way He did it in somebody else's life. But one thing we know, they had confidence that God could watch over their child in the Nile just as easily as God could watch over their child in their home. So they make an ark of bulrushes, and they place Moses within it. And they said, if God can save Noah in an ark, God can save Moses in an ark. And they pushed him out into the Nile River and into the everlasting and ever faithful arms of God. We see their practical conclusions. But what made them do it? Notice their powerful convictions. The Bible says, look at it again, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a what? A proper child. Uh, This phrase proper child, it implies not only physical beauty, but moral or spiritual beauty. And what it means is they looked at this child and they said there's something not only physically, but spiritually beautiful about this life. This is something so alien to the culture that we live in today in which children, unborn children are treated as though they're a cluster of cells. God help us. Uh, Listen, it's a shock. People say, why aren't we having revival? I'm more wondering why God's not wiping us off the face of the earth, just to be honest. Because that would seem a lot more in keeping with how God interacts with nations that begin to worship false gods and cast their children into the fire. But they looked at this child and they said, God has something special for this child. They saw him as a child of destiny. They saw not only uh, his visage and his physical beauty and vigor, but they saw that God had a plan for their child. And listen, I'm not here to preach tonight, but God help us as parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and neighbors and just people that invest in the lives of young people to realize that God has big plans for the lives of young people. And we ought not treat it as a light or a trivial thing. They looked and they saw that God thought something of their child, so they said, we think something of our child. God has a plan for our child, so let's let God's plan be our plan. And then think about their personal courage. The Bible says they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Boy, they had every reason to be. If they had been found out, they would have been probably uh, executed in the most cruel terms. It probably would have been them thrown in the Nile to be drowned or swallowed up by crocodiles, but... They trusted God. They understood this, that there's an authority higher than this court, this world's courts recognize. Uh, You understand, and we'll say a word about this in a moment, that the Egyptians, they believed Pharaoh was God. They believed he was God. They believed when a person became Pharaoh, that he became a manifestation of Ra, the sun God. They believed he was divine. So the choice for Amram and Jochebed was who do we believe God really is? Do we believe it's who the world says is God? Their entire world was Egypt. They were the world superpower. And for them, that was where they lived. They were slaves there. That was what they believed the entire world was to them was Egypt. Do we believe that who the world says is God is God, or do we believe who the Bible says is God? Do we place our faith in the promises of God and in the revelation that He's given to our forefathers? And they said this, there's scarier things than the world's persecution. And God help you and me to understand that failing God is a more miserable outcome than disappointing the world. They did not fear the king's commandments. So what did this do? Well, this produced faith in Moses' life. We see the faith of Moses' parents, but we see the faith of Moses personally in verses 24 through verse 28. Let's read verses 24 through 26. The Bible says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, you know the story how that Pharaoh's daughter saw him, took pity upon him. Her heart sung out to him. She pulled him out of the Nile, and he was raised in the home of Pharaoh as Pharaoh's child. Choosing, verse 25, rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Stop and think about the sanctifying virtue of Moses' faith. Now, the term sanctifying means to set apart. Think about how easy it would have been for Moses to, to have just gone with the flow and grown up in the prosperity and splendor of Egyptian palaces. Think about everything that was offered to him. Notice, first off, the social position in verse 24. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Boy, you understand the implication of that, right? To refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter was to refuse to be called the heir to the throne of Egypt. The story is told, and you know how these stories go. We'll we'll get to heaven and find out that uh, half the things we told folks weren't true, amen, when it comes to anecdotal stuff from from the pulpit. But uh, Josephus records a commonly held fable about Moses that as he was growing up in Pharaoh's palace, there came a time when he was just a little lad that uh, he was standing there in front of Pharaoh one day. And again, it's said that uh, Pharaoh, just out of love and just you know, almost like a grandfather would, playing with a child, took his, his crown off of his head, the mitre off of his head, and placed it upon that little boy's head. And it said that that young child, Moses, took that off and threw it on the ground, as no doubt you've seen toddlers do time and again. Now, I don't believe that was the moment when he refused. I believe when it was he, he was come to age. But I do believe it is illustrative of the, the abandon with which he left Egypt. Like a little child would take a hat off their head, and you've seen them. If you've had kids and tried to put hats on them, you've seen them do it a thousand times. Take that hat off their head and throw it down and say, I don't want that. That's the very thing Moses did when he became a grown man. The crown of Egypt was poised to rest on his head. He could have become God to those people. There's a reason the Bible says Moses was the meekest man to ever walk the face of the earth. He said, I don't want to be God. I just want to follow God. I'd rather listen. I'd rather be the shepherd of God's sheep than to be a pretender to God's authority. Faith recognizes what's real and what's false and chooses what is real based upon the truth of God's word over the illusions that the world can offer us. Faith looks and says, listen, I'd rather I'd rather have a crown that I can cast at his feet than a crown that is just fake gold and plastic jewels. And that's all that Pharaoh could have offered him. No real authority, but just only the adoration of mankind. We see his virtue over social position. Verse 25 speaks of his virtue over sinful pleasure. The Bible says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You understand that Moses, he's a 40-year-old man. He could have lived out the rest of his life in the palaces of Egypt, never wanting for anything. The darkest and deepest and most desirable pleasures that the devil, that hell, that the world, that the flesh could ever endorse could have been his at a moment, and it would have not only been accepted, it would have been appreciated and endorsed amongst his peers. But he said, I'd rather suffer with God than enjoy sin. Faith looks at what really matters. Faith looks not at the season. Faith, faith looks at eternity and says, I'd rather, listen, I'd rather have God for eternity than have sin for just a few pleasurable moments. Verse 26, the Bible says, he, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. We see faith sanctifying virtue over staggering prosperity. You understand that when they began to unearth, you remember, I, I remember when I was growing up, I go over to my grandmama's house and uh, she was, she was a, an invalid. She had rheumatoid arthritis and they can't do a lot for it now, but they could do even less back then. Sure. Her hands were drawn up, and, but there's nothing she loved more than have us kids. Over. She lived on finger hut magazine. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Let me tell you something, that woman did more shopping than anybody that could get out of bed and drive around West Knoxville has ever done. She used to have this curio cabinet with all kinds of little stuff in it. Junk is what it was, but man, to us kids, it was the greatest thing in the world. Uh, I remember my grandmama, uh, when I go over to her house, she had a few movies that we always loved to watch. I remember watching Indiana Jones when I was over there. And uh, that was a big deal to a little fella. Hey, Amen. I had to go over to Nanny's house and watch Indiana Jones. But she also had an old movie called The Curse of King Tut's Tomb. I'm sure you remember that movie. It's uh, kind of an old movie, but it detailed the men when they uh, opened King Tut's tomb and the supposedly eerie spooky curses that befell them. But one of the things I'll never forget when I remember watching that movie is when they opened the vault to see all of the glimmering, beautiful treasure. It is an established fact that when they opened these vaults and these kingly tombs in Egypt, the Egyptians believed that you could take possessions with you. And so oftentimes they would put not just gold and treasures, but live servants in the tomb when uh, a pharaoh died. And those, uh, those servants would die in there uh, with that dead body present so that they could attend him when he got to the other side. You understand, that's what they put in the tomb. Imagine what they had in the treasury. And all of it would have been Moses's. He would have had all of it. All of the treasure that your heart could desire. But he said, no, I think the reproach of Christ, I think just to suffer for God is more valuable than that. You know why? Because he had reverence. He had respect under the recompense of the reward. He understood that those things were fleeting. But what God would give him would be eternal. It would be eternal. Moses' faith personally. We see sanctifying virtue. Notice faith's solid victory. Verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." He had victory over the lore of the world. Faith is enough to give us victory over the world. First John tells us that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And Christ Himself said this to His disciples uh, in that grand priestly prayer in John chapter number 17, that what could overcome the world was faith. Preacher, how can I stand against the influences of this world by believing God and His promises? Preacher, how can I stay true to God by keeping your eyes on Him who is invisible? He overcame the lure of the world. He overcame the lust of the flesh. The Bible says not fearing the wrath of the king. Don't you know it would have been tempting for him to tremble and to fear Pharaoh's retribution? i tell you the thing that's astonishing to me is not even so much that he left, but that he came back. It's one thing to believe, especially in that time, that you could get away and if you got safely far enough away, that in all of the known world, they'd never be able to track you down. Do you understand the faith he exhibited when 40 years later, God spoke to him in a burning bush and said, Moses, I want you to go back to that palace that you've not set foot in for 40 years. I want you to look into the eyes of the Pharaoh that now sits on that throne, and I want you to declare unto him that my authority is greater than his authority. What faith Moses must have had to have to overcome the fear That would have come over him. And Moses was fearful. The notion that Moses was some kind of uh, guy made of stone that wasn't afraid. Read your Bible. Moses was terrified. He said, I wouldn't even know what to say. God said, you just tell him I am that I am since you. He said, Moses, you don't have to believe in yourself. You just have to believe in me. We live in a world today that tells you you can accomplish anything by believing in yourself. But that's not true. There's tons of people all over the world that believe in themselves and then fail miserably. Because the truth is, you're not a Savior, but Christ is. Remember what we talked about. It's not faith in and of itself. It's the object of faith. It wasn't enough just to believe. He had to believe in God. And so when Moses sought for boldness... God didn't say, well, go ahead, Moses, you'll do fine. Well, Moses, think of all you've done before. Well, Moses, what a tough guy you are. Well, Moses, surely you'll find the words. He said, no, Moses, you recline upon my person and you tell him I am that I am Since you. He forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. And the Bible says he endured seeing him who is invisible. His faith gave him victory over the lies of the devil. No doubt it must have been tough when he was on the run thinking, all that I gave up and here I am just a shepherd over my father-in-law's flock. But for forty long years as the voice of God was silent to him, he endured because faith enabled him to see him who was invisible. You understand what an astounding thing it is that Moses leaves Egypt and we have no record of God's uttering a word to him until forty years later? You know, really where faith is proven is in the long run. Anybody can have faith for a moment. I mean, hey, listen, I, I, I remember one time hearing a, a story, and some of you all have been around here, you know this is, is true. Uh, I, I went to school with, a, or I worked with a boy, and his brother used to go to church here. The whole family used to go to church here. And uh, one day, Paul was his name. And uh, one day, Paul was over here playing and, and goofing around and everything, and he somehow managed to get up on top of that storage area up there. And you can look up and see yourself that there's a pulley up there, right? And Paul decided it'd be a good idea to jump off of there while holding on to that rope. And uh, he believed that would work out good for him. <laughs> and it did. It, I, it worked out fine for about 12 feet. <laughs> and then he hit the concrete and broke both of his arms. It ain't no big deal to believe for a little while. Belief for a little while made him jump off of that. It's easy to sock yourself up to trust God for a day, a week, or a month. But only true Bible-based biblical faith can endure seeing him who is invisible. How many times have you heard a story of a kid decided he was going to jump off of the roof with a bed sheet tied around his waist thinking it would carry him? He believed he'd fly, but he learned real quick. See, it's easy to have faith for a moment. And I say that to say that a child can psych themselves up to have faith in something completely illogical, completely ludicrous for just a moment. It's not based on reality. There is no precedent for it. In all the stories I have heard of kids that have jumped off of roofs thinking they could fly or thinking they was going to parachute, I've never heard one that ended this way. And then the wind caught the parachute and he floated safely to the ground. I've never heard that once. There's not a single lick of precedent for it. But you see, there's a difference between the sheer raw force that blind, illogical faith can have and the steady, sustaining faith that biblical faith can have, or steady, slow, enduring strength that biblical faith provides us. For 40 years, Moses didn't hear the voice of God. But when God spoke, he was ready. Why? Because he had been convinced of God's plan and promise 40 years prior, and he endured. Now, can I pause and say a word about this? Why is the Hebrew writer telling us this? Because the Christian Jews or the Jewish individuals in the first century, they had far more to go on than Moses ever did. They had far more evidence far more reality, far more manifestation of the saving and changing power of God in the lives of the people around them than Moses ever had. Moses went 40 years without hearing the voice of God after God had given him one promise. And then we struggle to trust God when we have a Bible full of them. He's saying, listen, if Moses could endure, then you can endure. You can endure. Notice a couple things very quickly. We see faith, spiritual vision. Verse number 28, through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Here we have another indication of Moses' supreme meekness. Surely Moses wouldn't need the lamb. Surely Moses wouldn't need the shed blood. Surely that Passover was for all those Egyptian slaves, all those that had been in bondage, but Moses, he'd been to the burning bush. Surely he didn't need it. But instead, when God said, every household will the death angel pass by, Moses said, I'm not exempt. And he had faith in the requirement of the Passover. He believed that if God said his household was in danger, then his household was in danger. It's fascinating when you think about not only the requirement, but the reason. The Bible says the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Death was imminent. Now, stop and think about the vivid picture this is to the Jewish individual in the first century. You know that every time that the Pharisees, when they spoke about the law, they spoke about Moses. And every time they spoke about Moses, they spoke about the law. You understand the Passover was not rightly part of the law. The law was not given until Sinai. The Passover was given while they were still in Egypt. So, almost in the same way that the Hebrew writer draws the conclusion that Levi, because he was in Abraham, had paid tithes unto Melchizedek, then Levi was subject and was lesser than Melchizedek. In the same way, if Moses is a representative of the law, then you understand that even the symbol of the law submitted under the necessity of the shed blood of the Lamb. This exhibits to us... That the law can't do what the Lamb can do for us. And that even Moses himself needed the shed blood to avoid God's judgment. We see in verse number 29 not only the faith of Moses' parents and the faith of Moses personally, but we see the faith of Moses' people. And we actually have three illustrations of this. In verse 29, we see the crossing of the Red Sea, and we notice two thoughts. Uh, notice, first off, the boldness of the saints. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. I love this passage of Scripture. I will make a promise to you. Unless you are very, very, very familiar with that portion of Scripture, you ought to go back when you get home tonight and read Exodus chapter 12 and you will be amazed how much is in there that you never noticed was in there. The Bible talks about how when they arrived at the Red Sea that the angel of the Lord removed from in front of them and the pillar of cloud removed from in front of them and went back and separated the armies of Egypt and the children of Israel. Boy, what a, what a beautiful picture. The angel of the Lord, the Bible says, was on one side towards the children of Israel, giving them light, and the cloud was on the other side, giving them security and cover and concealment. When the uh, when the oh my when the Egyptians looked forward, they saw darkness. When the children of Israel looked backwards, they saw light. And it reminds us of this that the preaching of the cross is foolishness unto them which believe, but uh, or unto them which perish. But to us which believe, it is the power of God unto salvation. They look and see a dark cloud when they see Calvary. Oh, but we look and we see the bright shining light of God's love and salvation. Bible says this, that the angel looked through the cloud and saw the Egyptians and he took their chariot wheels off so that they mired down in the mud and the muck there in the middle of uh, of the Red Sea. Uh, There's so much that's fascinating about it. But what's. The most fascinating thing to me, I think, of everything is the exchange that takes place between Moses and God. They get to the Red Sea. Moses turns and looks at the children of Israel and says, stand still. Now, God didn't say that. Moses said that. Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He says, God will fight for you. They'll not even touch you. And then the Bible says, the Lord spoke. And he said unto Moses, wherefore, cries thou unto me, tell the people To go forward. Go forward. He tells Moses, stretch out your staff and I'll separate the Red Sea. Now, you can believe what you want, but I believe they didn't even have to slow down. I believe if they had kept walking, one of two things would have happened. Either God would have parted the Red Sea without Moses waving his staff over it, or I'm sort of of the opinion they might have just walked straight on across the water like Jesus did, like God allowed Peter to do. But here's the truth that's being conveyed. With the Red Sea in front of them... With the armies of Pharaoh behind them, what was God's commandment? Go on and trust me for the journey. How, how, how poignant and relevant would this have been to these Jewish believers? Behind them is the dark cloud of Judaism. Floating over them. They know there's no life in it. They know it's dead. They know there's nothing for them back there. You know the thing that they appreciated about Egypt when they got on the other side of the Red Sea? You know the only thing they could brag about Egypt? They said they had fish, onions, and leeks. If that's the best thing you've ever had to eat, God help you. And then they said they have graves. They have graves. The only thing they could think back about Egypt that Canaan didn't have was graves. They have Judaism and all of its deadness behind them and the sensuality that appealed to man exalting and deifying himself and his self-worth. But in front of them, they have a sea of persecution that they know they'll endure if they choose Christ. What are they going to do? God says, go forward. Go forward. And trust me, don't go back to the deadness of Judaism. Go forward into the life that I provide for you. But then stop and think about not only the boldness of the saints, the thing of the brazenness of the sinners, the Bible says, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. This is a stark reminder to them that unbelief cannot stand where faith stands. And that if they are going to go on and trust God, they're going to have to do it by faith. In other words, what he's saying is this, that only death lies behind you. Spiritual deadness. The Egyptians, they couldn't go forward. They stood there and drowned because unbelief cannot stand where faith Notice the second thing we see, conquering of Jericho in verse number 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. We learn where faith triumphs. Jacob, uh, or uh, excuse me, Jericho stood as a barricade into the Canaan land. They could not get into Canaan unless they dealt with Jericho first. But Jericho was a problem, too, because it was surrounded by walls that were many feet thick Uh, They were surrounded by walls that were impenetrable impenetrable to them or to any army of the day. And uh, anybody that's studied warfare understands that uh, the most difficult type of war you can fight is that of attrition and trying to take a place that is walled, especially if it's a place that's well, uh, well provided for and can grow its own crops, and Jericho was. There was no way that they could take down those walls. The walls were thick enough that people lived inside of those walls. It was impossible. But faith works where things are impossible. Don't you understand there's nothing that's too big for God? There's nothing in your life that God cannot handle. There's no problem that you face that God looks at and says, Boy, I'd love to help him with it, but it's just above my pay grade. God is able to conquer anything we face, anything we challenge. But I think it's important to notice when faith triumphs. Where faith triumphs is anywhere. There's nothing too big. But when does faith triumph? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after. Always pay attention to time words in your Bible, like when and then and now and after. And it tells us this, that complete obedience was required for God's plan to be exercised. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Now, you know the story how the children of Israel, they marched for six days, once a day, around that wall. And I'm sure in those six days they endured scorn and mockery. I'm sure for six days they felt like total and utter fools. For six times on the seventh day, nothing changed. But that seventh time, faith destroyed walls that fighting never could. For thirteen times they rounded the circumference of that wall. Twelve wouldn't have been enough. Eleven wouldn't have been enough. Twelve and a half wouldn't have been enough. But thirteen was enough. You know, part of the problem with us, we give up on God too easily. God has, in no uncertain terms, made clear to us what it means to walk with Him. God has made clear to us that walking with Him is going to mean people are going to forsake you. It's going to mean that there's times you're not going to be accepted. It's going to mean there's times you're not going to understand. It's going to mean there's times you're going to suffer. It's going to mean there's going to be times that though you'll never do without the necessities of life, you may do without some of the pleasures of life. God has in no uncertain terms made clear to us that living for Christ is not embracing comfort and ease. But we're always astounded when it gets difficult. It never fails. The moment it gets tough, we begin to say, well, where are you at, God? God's where he's always been. And his promises are just as sure. What would it have meant if they had stopped after 12 times? What would it have meant if they had said, for six days we've walked around, and now on this seventh day we've walked around six times, and God's not done anything, and just quit? The walls would still be standing. The enemy would have prevailed. Nothing would have changed. Here's when things change, when we, by faith, obey God. Too often we want to give up on God's plans too quickly. And then we see faith convincing Rahab. Can I say a quick word about this? If ever we needed a sign of divine authorship of the Bible, we have it right here. Think of all the people that are not gone into in detail in Hebrews chapter 11. You understand that though David is mentioned, Nothing in David's life is unpacked in Hebrews 11. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart is not mentioned in detail. Samuel, the last judge, the first prophet, the one that ushered the children of Israel into a kingdom age is not gone into into detail here. But Rahab, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, the harlot is included here. No Jew in their right mind would have made that decision. Only God would have done this. One of the greatest sources of comfort that I have in the infallibility and divine authorship of the Word of God is that God doesn't brush over people's mistakes. God writes people's lives in with all the warts and mistakes and problems, and Rahab is no different. We see the product of Rahab's faith. The Bible says in verse number 31, By faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. Life was given unto her. She was spared. When the spies came in, she had already heard the reputation of the children of Israel. And more importantly than that, she already knew the power and majesty of their God. And she says to the spies, she says that everywhere you people and your God go, the armies just melt. And the people's hearts just melt. And she said this, I'd rather be on God's side than on my side. You know what salvation is? There's a lot of ways we could define what coming to Christ is. But I've always thought this was a good example. Faith is deciding that your way doesn't work and you want God. When people talk about repentance, there's a lot of different things that relate to repentance. Repentance is a lot like faith. Repentance has an outward expression. But repentance is not that outward expression. Repentance is the inward attitude of the heart, the same way faith is. In other words, faith is not what we do. Faith is what prompts us to do. Repentance is not that we turn. Repentance is the faith that we have and the belief and confidence in God that prompts that turn. And so when a person repents and believes on Christ, I don't think repentance is as it relates to salvation, is necessarily the drunkard throwing away his, his liquor or the dopehead throwing away their dope. I think repentance is when we say, I choose Christ over me. I've been doing things my way and I believe according to God's Word that my way will send me to hell. So I turn away from dependence on me and I turn to dependence on Christ. Rahab exemplified this. She said, when this battle happens, Jericho is going to lose. My people are going to lose. I've seen the end of this, and I don't want to be on the losing side. I choose God because He can protect me. See, the product of her faith. But what was the proof of her faith? The Bible says when she had received the spies in peace. A lot of people believe that Rahab's faith was exercised when she let the cord out of the window, but that's not it. Her faith had already been exercised. You know why? Because her faith was sealed when she let those spies in her house. The scarlet cord was a token of her faith. But her faith had already been settled and had already been determined when she let them in her house. They were the closest thing she had to a connection with the God of Israel. They were the closest. She had never met an Israelite. She had never met someone that worshiped Jehovah. But whenever God put someone in her path that knew him, she said, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to shelter them. I'm going to shield them. In other words, when God shined a light in her life, she walked in that light. We see Rahab as an example. We've gone through a good length of, uh, of people in Hebrews chapter number 11. In fact, I'm going back to find the uh, point number one. He's illustrating faith by glorious illustration. And that begins in verse three of the chapter. But now he relates to us faith by general illusion. And we'll move through this pretty quickly. Look at verse number 32 with me. We have a sort of a laundry list of individuals. The writer says, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. And we know that's Gideon. And of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Here he names four judges, one king, one prophet, and then a whole order of prophets. As these are divided up, the first four Appeal to an age of dark apostasy, and we see Gideon, of course, who defeated by the Lord's hand the Midianites. Gideon was noted for his visions that God spoke to him, and he trusted God. My little boy, uh, he, he watches this little program that, that this little Bible program, and uh, in, in this, they have one that's on Gideon, and there comes this part where everybody lifts the, their, uh, where Gideon lifts his sword, and everybody shouts and they say, "The sword and the Lord and of Gideon." And for two years now, I've had to deal with a toddler running around the house at random times in the middle of my peace and quiet, holding up toy swords and saying, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon! I don't want to discourage him. I'm proud of him, but sometimes Daddy needs a little quiet time, you know? We see Barak. He was noted for his victory. We see Samson, who was noted for his valor. We see Jephthah who was noted for his vow. You ought to read about Jephthah in the book of Judges and how he made a vow concerning uh, killing uh, someone turned out to be his daughter. Uh, we look at that and that, we recoil from that. We think, how is that something to appreciate? Well, here's what it was. He had made a vow and he chose the vow he made to God over the love that he had for his daughter. And while certainly it was folly for Jephthah to make that vow, it tells us this, that you always wind up better By obeying God, no matter the cost, you always wind up better. In David, we have an age of divine approval spoken of. David, of course, is the first rightful king over the children of Israel. And we can look at David's life, and it is ripe with examples of faith. And then Samson speaks of an age of direct appeal when the prophets. And Samuel, of course, started the school of prophets. And uh, God used those men. They suffered persecution, but they spoke truth. In a dark time, we see a reference to people by name in verse 32, but then we see a reference to people by fame. And we're just going to run through these very quickly. In verses 33 through 35, we have those that have been delivered from their foes. The Bible says who through faith subdued kingdoms as Moses did, wrought righteousness as Abel did, obtained promises as Abraham did did, stop the mouths of lions as Daniel did, who quenched the violence of fire as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, who escaped the edge of the sword as David did, who out of weakness were made strong as Samson was, and who, the Bible says, turned to flight the armies of the aliens as Joshua did. Women received their dead, raised to life again by the hands of Elijah and Elisha. Time and time again, we have the prevailing power of faith to deliver us from our foes. And again, let me remind you that there's no problem you face but what God is bigger than it. Then we have those that were delivered to their foes, mentioned at the end of verse number 35. The Bible says, and others, some were delivered, some were not. But whether they were delivered or not, faith still gained a victory. Listen, whether your life works out the way you think or not, Faith will always be victorious. Whether it works out the way you think is a victory or not, faith is always victorious. The Bible says others were tortured as the prophets were. And Zechariah uh, comes to mind and Jeremiah comes to mind, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, and we can't help but think of our Lord and Savior. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment makes us think of Joseph. They were stoned, uh, which was the typical way of Jewish uh, execution. They were sawn asunder. Uh, We believe this happened to Isaiah, that Manasseh, wicked king Manasseh, put Isaiah in the trunk of a hollow log and had him sawn in two. The Bible says they wandered, they were slain with the sword, Uh, they were tempted, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Boy, this is encouraging. Of whom the world was not worthy. The world didn't appreciate them. The world never appreciates true biblical faith. That's because the world's not worthy of it. It's not because these men were not worthy of the admiration of the world. It's because the world was not worthy of the blessings of their faith. The Bible says they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And then finally, we have one final thought. We see faith decreed two simple things. First, the appeal that he gives in verse thirty nine. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now, why is he saying this? You must time and again, when you study your Bible, you must time and again ask yourself, why is this here? Why is it said this way? Why is this said at all? Who is this being said to? Because remember, the people that he's writing to are struggling. They've placed their faith in Christ, some of them, and they've been persecuted for it. And some of them are afraid to place their faith in Christ because they're afraid of the persecution. Some of them are getting ready to turn back because they're scared and they don't know what to do. And he says, don't you understand that all these obtained a good report through faith and none of them received the promises? In other words, think of what they did. Think of what they had. Now think of what we have and think of what we could do. These all living in a time of darkness, living in a day of shadows. We live in the day of substance and of good things to come. And so he says in verse 40, we find the application, God having provided some better thing for us. There we have that term better again. We have something better that they without us should not be made perfect. In other words, what he's saying is this. God has a plan, and these first century Jews were a part of that plan. He's getting ready to say in the first verse of chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. What he's saying is this. If they could walk with God, you could walk with God. Here's something we need to be oft reminded of, and I'll say this and I'm done. We're not the first. If the Lord tarries his coming, we won't be the last. Others have followed God. We can follow God. God has empowered others. God can empower you. You're not the first to pass this way. Listen, I may have never been through what you're going through, but somebody has. And the Lord Jesus has been through it. And there's nothing you face but what God is able to empower and to strengthen you to endure as seeing him who is invisible.